Beulah, thanks for letting me be part of your camp. This is a historic camp. God has met with you many, many times in the past. And to just be part of that rich history has been just a humbling uh, and very rewarding experience for Lori and I. I don't know if Lori's, if my wife's in the room, but if she is, she won't identify herself now because I'm going to ask her to stand. There she is, back there, by the soundboard. She is awesome. Um, I generally tell people that when I am out in public, I, people will listen to me, but they actually like her. <laughs> She's just a very humble, and I think she was born nice, to be very honest with you, and didn't have to work hard at it, and so people just seem to migrate to her. Thanks for making her feel welcome. You guys have been just a terrific community for us to step into for the last four or five days. You've listened well. Um, even when I've tried to turn it down, you were gracious, and, and uh, yeah, I'm really, really kind. Uh, so thank you. To those who fed us and you took care of us at the heartland and you played on the platform and you um, ran the sound systems. It's all of the people that are behind the scenes that you typically don't see are actually the ones who hold up a camp like this. And I'm just deeply indebted to them. And to, yeah, yeah. Peter, to you and your team, and your leadership in the district. Thank you, brother. I think we've talked more in the last couple of months than we have <laughs> combined, but that's going to continue, I hope, and we'll get, we'll get a chance to connect more later. Don't change your cell <laughs> Well, I want to go out tonight or today talking to you about something you already know about, and that's going to be a problem. I want, uh, I felt after this morning um, leaving you the way that I left you, the best thing I could do for you this afternoon was to give you um, the gospel. <laughs> I hesitate to say it because the moment I use the word, you think you know what I mean. 1990, Stanford University, Elizabeth Newton, who was a graduate student there, investigated what she called the curse of knowledge. She did this by inventing a simple game involving tappers and listeners. The way the game was played was they brought in um, a handful of tappers, and then they brought in a handful of listeners. They gave the tappers a list of songs that everyone knew, songs like um, Happy Birthday to You, and since I remember where I'm at, songs like O Canada. And the object of the game was for the tapper to tap out the rhythm of the song. So in their minds, they were thinking, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, or oh, Canada, my home and native land. True patriots' dreams in all thy sons' command. Okay? You get the idea? (laughs) 
And they guess beforehand, how often with you tapping that out, will the listener begin to identify it? And they guessed it would happen about half of the time. So they said, uh, we'll give you 120 songs, and they tapped out 120 songs, and they uh, guessed the correct number of songs three times. So in other words, they thought the listener would hear the tune one out of two times, but they actually heard the tune one out of 40 times. This is what Elizabeth Newton called the curse of knowledge. Once you know something, once you have it in your head, you just begin to say it. And you can't understand why the other person doesn't hear it. The opposite is also true. Once you know something, someone can be tapping something else, but you have in your head the thing that you know, and you cannot hear any other thing except the thing that you know. Are you still there? So it, so it was that a Nobel-winning scientist in the 1990s, when they handed him, by the way, he did research on ulcers, and he proved that the medical society was wrong in all of their assumptions. It wasn't due to stress after all. It was due to acid in the stomach, and it revolutionized the way doctors treated ulcers. When he received the Nobel Award, in his speech he said that the opposite of knowledge was not ignorance, it was the illusion of knowledge. It's when you think you know something that you can't hear something else. You there? So when I tell you that I want to speak about the gospel, I think you're hearing the gospel I learned. And that is Christ died and was raised from the dead on the third day. This is my gospel, said Paul. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, descended from David, raised from the dead. This is my gospel. In fact, Paul said, if anyone comes and preaches any other gospel than the one I have preached, let him be anathema, anathema, let him be eternally condemned. This is the gospel I learned. This is the gospel I am not ashamed of. The trouble comes in Mark when Jesus comes preaching the gospel, saying, the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe the gospel. And yet, nothing that I just said the gospel is had happened yet. So either Jesus was about to speak in his sermon a bunch of predictions about his death and resurrection or the gospel that Jesus preached was something not other but something earlier and something larger than the one I learned in Sunday school.
It is the gospel in the Old Testament. Would you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 61? Last time, church. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair, and they will be called the oaks of righteousness, a planting from the Lord to display his splendor. And they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks and you will invite foreigners to work in your fields and in your vineyards and you, the laity, will be called a kingdom of priests. You will be named ministers of our God and you will feed on the wealth of the nations. Instead of your shame, my people, you will receive a double portion and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance and so you will inherit a double portion of the land and everlasting joy will be yours. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. The gospel is mentioned 24 times in the Old Testament. That's a two dozen times. The Hebrew word basar, which is the equivalent to the Greek euangelion or evangelism, occurs two dozen times in about 21 different places. It occurs in the book of Samuel. It occurs in the book of Kings. It occurs a number of times in the book of Psalms. But when it gets into the prophets, it really gets interesting. The prophets pick up this word gospel or good tidings or good news, and they use it in their messages to people that are in exile, to the people of God that are in exile. And so in Isaiah chapter 40, when the narrative of Isaiah turns from the first half to the second half, from Israel in exile to Israel coming out of exile, at the beginning of Israel's deliverance from exile, from prison, from 70 years of bondage, the prophet Isaiah is told to go up on a mountain and to shout from the top of his lungs the gospel of salvation, which is, here comes your God. Or in one translation, literally, look, look. 
It's God. <laughs> it sounds like the people of Gotham when they're in trouble and Batman is coming. Look, it's Batman. <laughs> this, is, this is Israel knowing that they are in bondage and the messenger has just told them God is on the way. In Isaiah chapter 52, the same thing happens. The prophet says, how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring the gospel. That's the word, basar, who bring the gospel, shouting at the top of their lungs, your God reigns, which is wonderful news to anybody who spent the last 70 years under the rule in the harsh reign of Babylon's gods. To hear that your God is rising on the horizon and he is about to come back into your land and set all things right is wonderful news. The prophet Nahum picks up the same word, gospel, good news, and says, blessed are those who bring the gospel, the good news of peace. So what you're hearing right now is that the gospel in the Old Testament is this. The people of God are in a predicament. They are in exile. They're in bondage. Isaiah says they are wandering in darkness. They are lost. They are blind. They cannot see. Then God has noticed. He has heard their prayers. And God is about to do something. Isaiah says he will roll up his sleeve and bear his mighty Arm. Isaiah said, when he comes, he will judge the nations. He will turn their swords into plowshares. He will establish a temple on a mountain and the nations will stream into the temple of our God and they shall hear the gospel. So when God finally comes, he is going to up set the establishment. He's going to turn everything upside down. Those in power will be brought down and those who are humble will be lifted up. Those who are hungry will be fed and those who have everything will go hungry. You hear this in Mary's Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, when she hears that she will give birth to the Messiah, she goes into this beautiful song where she predicts everything the Messiah will do, upset the order of things and turn everything upside down. But he will not do it, as I said this morning, in a way of power. The power of the Almighty's arm is not one that crushes his opponents. The way of the sovereign God is always the same. There is a universal problem, and he will find a particular person. 
He will put a particular person in the middle of that universal problem. And that person will lead a people that are just like him. You want examples? He will call Abraham. And Abraham is not just a person. He is a people, a kind of people. Later, he will call Moses when the predicament is bondage. And Moses is not just a person, he becomes a nation. In the book of Isaiah, when Israel is in bondage, he will call the servant of the Lord. But the servant of the Lord is not just a person, it is a type of person. It's a kind of people that live like that person in the midst of the empire, and they live in a fundamentally different way. And they win not by overpowering the empire. They win by living out on the margins a quiet alternative. David Brooks says the world changes when a few people, usually on the margins, Find a better way to live. And others begin to copy them. It is slow. It is hard. It is terribly frustrating. And it feels unrewarding. But there is no other way. So when Jesus came preaching, the kingdom is near. Believe the good news. He was picking up Isaiah's theme. God is a foot. God has landed in the middle of the empire and he has found 12 people who became 120 on Pentecost. And by the time the day was over, over 3,000. And by the time the first century ended, over 500,000. God has landed. He has found a church that is growing in the hardest of times. When it was against the law to gather, the church was multiplying exponentially. And these were their orders from the Sermon on the Mount. You will be a different kind of person. You will be poor in spirit. And you will mourn. And you will bring peace. And you will be merciful. And you will hunger and thirst after righteousness. And you will be persecuted for bearing my name. You will keep your promises 
Your yes will be yes, and your no will be no. You will love your enemies. You will walk with them the extra mile. You will give them more than what they stole from you. You will bless those who curse you. And you will pray for those who persecute you. And when you do this, you are a social alternative. And they will find you. Last story. I looked a while ago for examples of communities that lived like gospel. If the gospel is not just something you preach to sinners, but something prophets preach to believers, then where is there examples of a community that lives like the community Jesus defined. I stumbled across a story of a French resistance community in the midst of the Second World War, and it rattled me. So I looked into it. I read multiple sources and put together a story of this community. Can I tell it? And then I'm done. Philip Haley was an ethicist, trained as a soldier, specializing in the study of cruelty and goodness. My approach to goodness, he said, does not use abstract nouns like justice. It uses proper names and verbs because names and verbs keep us close to the facts, he said. Haley was armed with degrees in philosophy and in the humanities, and he studied institutionalized slavery and genocide. Eventually, he studied the American slavery and the Holocaust. Cruelty, he learned, is an assault on a person's soul. It maims a person's dignity and crushes their self-respect. In his books, Haley describes in vivid detail the cruelty of slave masters and guards at the Nazi camps. He uses names. He tells stories from hundreds of interviews. The details are shocking and they're numbing. Institutional cruelty, he wrote, is the subtlest kind because the victim knows that he's being hurt and the oppressor knows it too. But in these patterns of humiliation that endure for years, both the victim and the oppressor find ways of hiding or obscuring the harm. Blacks 
come to think of themselves as inferior or dirty, he says, and Jews come to think of themselves as weak or ugly. Over time, these images harden in the souls of the victim until it shapes their self-awareness even after they've been freed. At the heart of such cruelty lies an imbalance of power, said Haley. Sometimes this imbalance takes the form of physical dominance, as in the case of slavery, but just as often it occurs in subtle ways, in language, in jokes, innuendos, that reinforce the stereotype and reduces the worth of a person and elevates the superiority of the guard or the master. Even an act of kindness, such as giving a slave a piece of bread or smiling at a prisoner in the concentration camp, can be a subtle way of reinforcing this disparity in power. Or in the words of Frederick Douglass, these acts just gild the chains. Hoping to find a little goodness, Haley said, I started looking closely at the medical experiments that were done on Nazi children, mostly Jewish or gypsy. Here were the weakest of the weak. Not only were they despised minorities, they were individuals still in their youth. They were dependents. Here, the imbalance of power was at its greatest. But instead of finding goodness, Haley descended even lower into the abyss, feeling anger for the Nazis and feeling sorrow for the children as they looked up at their oppressors in white coats. Who were removing their fingers. I was not achieving my goal, said Haley. I was becoming another victim, paralyzed by sorrow and anger, lost in the fog. To relieve himself, he started reading stories of the French resistance, and one day he stumbled across a small article about a village called Le Chambon, and he wept. In his words, with tears of expectation, like the kind you cry when you suddenly realize you're looking at an ideal. What I discovered, he said, is that goodness had names too. And it lived inside of people who lived in definite places at certain periods in the nightmare of history. Le Chambon is a village in southeastern France. It's in the mountains. It had about 3,500 people. It was responsible for saving over 6,000 Jewish children. Under a national government, that is the French, that was already collaborating with the Nazis, and in some cases even trying to outdo them, the people of Le Chambon began to buy houses and refurbish them just so they could house children. 
They forged documents. In some cases, they even kidnapped children from camps in order to hide them in their house. And then they took him across the mountains into Switzerland through the teeth of the French and German military power. Haley writes that what surprised him was that the villagers in Le Chambon did not see themselves as good people or even as successful. From their point of view, they didn't do anything that required explanation. He writes, when I asked them why they helped their dangerous guests, they inevitably replied, what do you mean, why? Where else could they go? How could you turn them away? What's so special about being ready to help? There was nothing else to do. Some of them laughed when I told them that I thought they were good people. They saw no alternative. Helping those children was for them as natural as breathing or eating. One does not think of alternatives to these functions, said Haley. And they did not think of alternatives to sheltering people. One day a refugee knocked on the door of an old farmhouse outside the village. The farmer's in that village were Protestants in the proper sense. They believed every word of the Bible. Some of them memorized it. A farm woman opened the door to the refugee, invited her into her kitchen where it was warm. Standing in the middle of the floor, the refugee in heavily accented French asked for eggs to feed her children. The farm woman looked into the eyes of the shawled refugee and asked, are you Jewish? And the woman started to tremble, but she could not lie. Even though this question usually spelled the beginning of the end for a Jew, the refugee answered quietly, yes. The woman ran from the kitchen to the staircase and called upstairs for her husband and children to come because she said we have in our house at this very moment one who is a representative of God himself. In his study, Haley learned that there were dozens and dozens of little villages like this scattered all over southeastern France and they had saved thousands of lives. That's when I discovered, he said, that the answer to cruelty is not brute force. It is a loving alternative. There is not one answer to cruelty. There are thousands of answers, hidden, invisible willingly doing what God has called them to do. 
thousands of others, he said, were murdering Nazis, presumably to help mankind. But these people murdered no one, and they betrayed not a single child in those four long years before the world ended. The opposite of cruelty, wrote Haley, is not kindness or even freedom. No, freedom was the end of cruelty, but it is not the opposite of cruelty because the victims never forget it. The opposite of cruelty, he said, is goodness. The goodness of the people from Les Chambon. In fact, as one child would write later, after they had grown up, if today we are not bitter people like most survivors are, it is because we met people like the people of Le Chambon who showed us simply that life can be different. There are people who care. People can live together and even risk their own lives for their fellow man. After Haley's book called Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed was released, he received a letter from an angry reader. (laughs) The reader wrote, I have read your book, and I believe you mushy-minded moralists should be awakened to the facts. Nothing happened in Le Chambon. Nothing of any importance whatsoever. The Holocaust, dear professor, was a geological event like an earthquake. No person could start it, and no person could change it, and no person could end it, and no small group of persons could could do it either. No, no, it was the armies and the nations that performed actions that counted. Individuals did nothing. You sentimentalists have got to learn that the great masses and the big political ideas are what make the difference. Your people and the people they saved simply do not exist. Haley was, of course, rattled by the accusation, but he knew better. He wrote, Between this man's position and mine is a chasm so wide that no amount of facts will span it. And so he said, I will only counter with this. I was lecturing a few months ago in Minneapolis, and when I was finished talking about the village of Les Chambon, a woman stood up and asked me if that was the village in the department of Haute-Loire. Obviously, she was French with her accent, and all the French people know there that there are many villages called Les Chambon. I answered that it was, in fact, the same village. There was a pause, and the woman said, You have been talking about the village that saved all three of my children. She thanked me for writing the book because now she said the story will be permanent. Then she asked if she could come forward and say one sentence to my audience. Haley said there was not a sound. 
not even breathing to be heard in the room. She came to the front and said simply, the Holocaust was the storm, the lightning, and the thunder. But Le Chambon was the rainbow. There is not one answer to evil. There are thousands. And they live in little places, in villages, cities, like the ones you live in. And they attend little churches with big visions. And the acts of kindness are done not by heroes, but by ordinary people like you. God is on the move. And he is raising up armies of good people. Jesus, I thank you for the hope that is in this room. I thank you for the thousands of invisible acts that have been done for the least of these by these people in just the last few years. May the gospel of your great son, Jesus Christ, be spread through the land, through the lives and communities in our church. And God's people said, I love you guys.